If you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn to Zechariah chapter 9. We'll be looking at Zechariah 9 to 11 this evening. It's a section of Zechariah, three chapters in length, 46 verses long, and it constitutes an oracle that the Lord gave to Zechariah. Of course, Zechariah, we have been in this book for the last several weeks, and I do want to say thank you to Abner Chow and to Joe Zakovich for the first three installments in this series. As you'll recall, Abner opened us up by looking at the grace of repentance from chapter 1, and then week 2 looked at chapter 1, the middle of the chapter, all the way to the end of chapter 6, and the eight night visions that the Lord gave to Zechariah. Then last week, Joe looked at chapters 7 and 8, contrasting counterfeit, superficial, ritualistic religion with the true heart attitude that characterizes those who are followers of Yahweh. Tonight we're looking at the first of two concluding oracles that the Lord gave to Zechariah. This oracle is in chapters 9 to 11. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the second of these oracles in chapters 12 to 14. These oracles, both of them, focus on the future. The content of these oracles is, from Zechariah's perspective, entirely future. And yet, in order to talk about the future this evening, we need to start by rehearsing the past. I want to begin by surveying five historic events that are going to set the table for our understanding of Zechariah's prophecy in these three chapters tonight. The first of these five events involved a man who lived roughly 450 years before Christ. This man lived in Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire, and he was a royal court official. He received some bad news, and that news made him a little bit discouraged. And one day while he was serving the king in his capacity as a royal official, the king noticed that he was a bit downcast and asked him, what's the matter? This man prayed to the Lord for courage and then he told the king, I'm discouraged because I've heard a report from my family and friends back in Jerusalem that the city is in disrepair, that the wall is in ruins, that the gates are still destroyed from Nebuchadnezzar's attack. And so he asked the king permission to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And in answer to that man's prayer, the king said yes. And Nehemiah was sent back to join the remnant in Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem in the year 445 B.C., just a few years before that. In 458 B.C., Ezra had also returned, and together Ezra revitalized the worship of Yahweh in the temple, and Nehemiah rebuilt the city. That's our first of these five historic events. About 100 years after that, a little more than 100 years after that, there was a man from Macedonia who raised an army, and challenged the Persian Empire. 
He was successful. He defeated the Persian army and he conquered the vast territory that had previously been occupied by the Persians. His name was Alexander the Great. Always brings me back to my childhood when we had Otter Pops, Alexander the Great. But Alexander the Great was a conqueror, and in the early 330s BC, he came, as he was conquering the remnants of the, of the Persian Empire, he came into the Middle East, and he conquered Syria, he conquered Damascus, And then he moved west and he conquered what is today Lebanon, conquering Tyre and Sidon. And then he moved south and conquered modern day Palestine, then known as Philistia. And all of this was part of God's plan. That's our second of these five historic events. The third took place 167 years before Christ. If you know anything about Alexander the Great's conquest, you know that after he died, his empire, the Greek empire, did not pass on to his children, but instead was usurped by his four generals, and they divided his empire into four regions. And the region where Israel is was actually between two competing parts of Alexander's former empire, but in the year 167, it was controlled by the Seleucids. It's part of the Seleucid kingdom. The Seleucids were part of the Greek empire, and they had introduced Hellenism, which is Greek culture and Greek religion and Greek customs and the Greek language, into the region surrounding Israel. And in the year 167, the emperor of the Seleucids, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, sought to convert the temple in Jerusalem into a Greek pagan worship center. He sacrificed infamously a pig on the altar. And that event caused the Jews of that time to rise up in revolt And they were led by a man named Judas Maccabeus, Judah the Hammerer. That's what Maccabees means. And the Lord allowed Israel to throw off the burden and oppression of the Seleucid control and oppression. In the year 164, Judah and his armies, they reconquered Jerusalem and they rededicated the temple to the worship of Yahweh. And that event is actually what is celebrated every year by Jewish people all around the world in the celebration of Hanukkah. And in fact, Hanukkah is referenced in the New Testament in John chapter 10, verse 22, where it is called the Feast of Dedication. That's our third of these five historic events. The fourth, if we move forward in history past the birth of Christ to the year approximately 30 AD, 33 or 34 years after Jesus was born, our fourth event is the rejection of the Messiah himself. He entered Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey on that triumphal entry. 
And he heard the shouts of the praises of the people, Hosanna, blessed, he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, less than a week later, he would be betrayed. And the price that the religious leaders would pay for his capture was 30 pieces of silver. His life, the life of the Messiah, was worth 30 pieces of silver in the minds of the corrupt religious leaders. That is our fourth historic event. Our fifth and final of these five historic events is the result of God's judgment on apostate Israel because 40 years after our Lord's death and resurrection, just as he himself promised in the Olivet Discourse, when the Jews of Jerusalem again rebelled, this time against Rome, a general who would later become the emperor named Titus Vespasian led Roman armies to Jerusalem, and in the year A.D. 70, he decimated the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And even after that, Tensions between the Jews in Israel and the Romans did not cease. There were a series of what are called Jewish-Roman wars. And 65 years after the temple was destroyed, another Roman emperor named Hadrian brought another army. And this time, he didn't just destroy the city of Jerusalem. He dispersed the Jewish people all throughout the world. And he disbanded the nation of Israel. And after the year 135, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. Now, why do I choose those five historic events to introduce our message on Zechariah 9 to 11? Well, because in these 46 verses, these three chapters, Zechariah prophesying in the early 500s BC, before any of the events that I just mentioned, he prophesied every one of those events. Or better said, the Lord, through his prophet, declared the future to his people. Now, in order to understand Zechariah's first oracle, we do have to just remind ourselves a little bit of the background of Zechariah and his ministry. You'll remember that the Jews of Judah, the southern kingdom, they were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar at the just the tail end of the 7th century BC and the beginning of the 6th century BC, Nebuchadnezzar actually made three trips to Jerusalem. His first trip was in 605 BC, and then he came back in 597 BC, and then he came back a third time in 586. And on each of those three times, he took captives with him back to Babylon. The reason those dates are significant is because the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that the Babylonian captivity would be 70 years. And what's really interesting is that that prophecy is fulfilled in two ways. 605 was Nebuchadnezzar's first visit, 
And in 535, 70 years later, Zerubbabel came back to the land with 42,000 returnees. You can read about all of that in Ezra chapter 2. At the end, there were 42,000 Jews who returned from Babylon. It was conquered by Persia at that time under King Cyrus, who returned to Judah, to Jerusalem in 535, 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar's first attack. But that prophecy of 70 years was fulfilled a second way, and that is that Nebuchadnezzar's third conquest of Jerusalem, the one where he destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, Solomon's temple. That took place in 586. And wouldn't you know it, on God's prophetic timeline, it was in 516 BC that the second temple was finished and dedicated. And in fact, it is the building of that second temple that Zechariah was commissioned to encourage Israel to complete along with his colleague Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah were there as prophetic encouragers telling the people, you can't stop, you have to complete the temple. And they did, 70 years exactly from when it was destroyed. And those prophecies that Zechariah gave to encourage the Israelites back in Judah, those prophecies specifically aimed at the rebuilding of the temple are the prophecies that are recorded in chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 8. These oracles in chapter 9 and chapter 12, going from chapter 9 all the way to the end of the book in chapter 14, these oracles were probably given by Zechariah after the temple was already completed. And yet the reason for them was the same. God's people needed to be encouraged Because if you're going to reconstitute a nation, like Zerubbabel was trying to do, 42,000 people isn't a very significant group with which to start. An entire nation of only 40,000 people. And the people were feeling discouraged, and they were feeling anxious. They were fearful of the surrounding nations, and they were wondering if God had forgotten them. And Zechariah, whose name means the Lord remembers, was there to tell them, God has not forgotten you. And in fact, what it is that you are doing as the remnant return to the land is a vital part of God's plan for redemption history. And let me show you that by revealing to you future events future events in which God is seen protecting and preserving his people. Does God have a plan for his people? Zechariah's answer to his listeners was yes. And so he provides this prophetic section revealing these future events, five of which... I just reiterated, for us, these five are history, but for Zechariah, they were all future. Now, before we dig into the specifics of Zechariah 9 to 11, there's just one more bit of context that I need to give you, and it is this. Zechariah, in his prophecy, much like Isaiah, when he gives glimpses of future events, he does not place them in chronological order of fulfillment. 
There are other prophets like Daniel who do generally provide their prophecies in chronological order. In fact, Daniel even gives time frames for when certain prophecies will be fulfilled. 70 weeks of years, for example, in Daniel chapter 9. But Zechariah doesn't do that. His focus, his emphasis is not on the when of prophetic fulfillment, but rather on the what of what God is going to do in the future. And so there are times when he will present a prophecy that will be fulfilled relatively soon. And right next to it, a prophecy that will be fulfilled much, much later in the future, near and far. And he'll go back and forth between the two because again, his focus is not on when, but on what. You can see an example of this just to point it out to you in chapter nine of Zechariah verses nine and 10. Zechariah 9, 9 is a familiar text. It's the text that prophesies about the Messiah's first coming that he would enter Jerusalem humble and lowly, riding on a donkey, yes, even the foal or the colt of a donkey. That prophecy, of course, was fulfilled at the triumphal entry in our Lord's first coming, roughly 530 years after Zechariah gave this prophecy. But notice the very next verse, the very next verse, verse 10, also a messianic prophecy, but it's a prophecy about Messiah establishing his kingdom, reigning in peace over the nations, that his rule will extend from shore to shore. Well, that's a prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled. It's a prophecy that points to his millennial reign. It's yet future. And so you can see how there's a near prophecy juxtaposed to a distant prophecy. Because again, Zechariah's point is not about when, it's about what. Perhaps a simple analogy can illustrate this point, and I think the effectiveness of it. When I was growing up, my family often, uh, I guess on an annual basis, once a year we would go camping. And as a young boy, I loved camping. I loved getting dirty. I loved playing in the mud, in the creek, in the dust. I am actually, as a parent now, looking back on it, amazed at how much work my parents put into all of that so that I could go live in the woods for a week. But camping was a great joy, and we would go up to Sequoia National Park, and we would camp in tents, and it was just a lot of fun, sitting around the campfire, eating s'mores, going on hikes, sleeping in tents, the whole thing. One of the things I remember about camping that was one of my favorite things was to look up at the stars at night. I mean, we just sang Psalm 8 earlier this evening. You know, when I consider the heavens, the stars, right? What is man that you would take thought of him, O Lord? And you know how it is. I mean, I grew up In Santa Clarita, not too far from Los Angeles, there's a lot of light pollution. You look up at the sky at night, you see some things, but not a lot of things. You get out into the mountains and you look up and you go, oh, wow, Lord, you've made so many stars. And it's amazing. 
And even as a young boy, there were two constellations. I mean, I'm no astronomer, but there were two constellations that we always tried to look for, the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. And of course, the way you find the Little Dipper is by finding the Big Dipper, and then the two stars that make up the outside of the cup of the Big Dipper point to the North Star, which is kind of the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. But what's interesting is as a kid looking up at the stars of the Little Dipper, from my vantage point, I couldn't tell which star was closer to earth and which star was farther from earth. In fact, from my perspective, it was just an amazing array of collective brilliance that all pointed to the creative power of God. I probably wouldn't have even cared to know which stars were closer and which stars were farther away. But science tells us, and for me, a quick Google search told me, that in the Little Dipper, the closest star is 97 light years away. And the farthest star is 480 light years away. That means of the seven stars of the Little Dipper, the closest star is less than five times away from the farthest star. I think that's a good illustration of what Zechariah is doing here with his prophecies. As the Lord reveals this truth through Zechariah, the point is not to figure out exactly which one happens when from the perspective of the listeners, but rather to just take in the collective magnificence of all of it and to realize, wow, look at all the things God is going to do in the future. This is amazing And in the same way, you would look up at the stars and say, wow, our God is sovereign over the heavens. You would look at the panoply of prophecy in this oracle and you would say, wow, our God is sovereign over history. It's not about the when, it's about the what. And really that's the point of Zechariah's oracles is to show us that God is sovereign over history history. Now, as we come to this text, recognizing that Zechariah is going to go from near prophecies to far prophecies to near prophecies to far prophecies, what I would like to do is I would like to identify the what of Zechariah's prophecy, and then we'll come back and talk about the why in terms of why the Lord gave this oracle to his people through his prophet. So we have two questions that we're asking this evening, the what and the why. In response to that first question or in answer to that first question, the what, we are going to identify 10 prophetic events that Zechariah highlights in these three chapters. 10 prophetic events that Zechariah highlights in these three chapters. Now, because perhaps I think in terms of chronology, I am going to present them in chronological order, which means we are going to kind of move throughout the text and look at different portions of it. But my goal is that when we're done, you will see all 10 of these prophetic events that Zechariah so clearly revealed 
or so clearly reported, given God's revelation to him. And then after we do that, I wanna take a few minutes to talk about why the Lord revealed all of this truth to his people back in the early 6th century BC, more than 500 years before the birth of Christ. So let's start with the what, the what. 10 events, 10 prophetic events. Now the first five, we're gonna go through very quickly. Why? Because I already told you what they were. So the first five are those five moments from history starting with the return of Ezra and Nehemiah and then the rise of Alexander the Great and then the revolt of the Maccabees and then the rejection of the Messiah and finally the destruction of the nation by the Romans. So number one, the return of the exiles. The return of the exiles. Now, of course, Zechariah had already returned with the first group of exiles, but his prophecy anticipates the return of additional groups. And I think we see an immediate fulfillment of that just 50 or 60 years after this prophecy was made by Ezra and Nehemiah and those who accompanied them. You find this in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Here, the Lord through his prophet says this, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, in other words, because of the covenant I have with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that covenant, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Stop there for a moment. The waterless pit would have in the minds of these listeners reminded them of Joseph, who was thrown into a waterless pit all the way back in Genesis by his brothers. And when they took him out of that pit, what did they do to him? They sold him into slavery in Egypt. It depicted all of Israel being sold into slavery in Egypt. And yet God redeemed Israel from Egypt. And God is now saying through his prophet, I have redeemed you not only from Egypt, but I have also delivered you from Babylonian captivity. And so, verse 12, it's time to return to the stronghold, a reference to Jerusalem. Return to the stronghold, O prisoners, who have the hope, that is the hope of the truth in Yahweh. This very day I am declaring that I will return double to you. In other words, the Lord says, I will bless you. But again, this not so much a prophecy, but a call, and yet it anticipates a fulfillment. And we see that fulfillment in not only that first group that came with Zerubbabel in 535 BC, but also those groups that came with Ezra in 458 and Nehemiah in 445. The return to the land of the remnant is the first fulfillment. Now we have to move quickly through these. Number two, not only the return of the exiles, but number two, the rise of the Greek empire. The rise of the Greek empire and specifically the conquest of Alexander the Great. We find this detailed in chapter nine, verses one through six. Zechariah doesn't use the name Alexander, but he describes the exact path that Alexander took 
when he conquered this portion of the Assyrian Empire. The oracle of the word of Yahweh is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of man, especially all the tribes of Israel, are towards Yahweh. Verse 2, and Hamath also, which borders it, or borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, because they are very wise. So Tyre built herself a tight fortification and tied up silver like dust and fine gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and strike her wealth down in the sea and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron for her hope has been put to shame. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And those of illegitimate birth, meaning foreigners, will inhabit Ashdod and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Now we don't have time to dig into a lot of depth on this, except to say again, that this is the path of conquest that Alexander the Great took in the year uh, 333 to 332 BC. And I just wanna make a couple of historical comments because I think it's fascinating. When Alexander the Great in 332 came to the city of Tyre, the leadership of Tyre refused to surrender because they thought they had an ace in the hole. In fact, when previous empires like Assyria and Babylon had come and tried to conquer Tyre, they were unable to do so. Tyre, by the way, is still a city. It's in modern-day Lebanon. But ancient Tyre had a fortress that was built off of the coast, about a half a mile, on an island, It had giant walls and it had the sea as a moat. And so when Alexander showed up, all the people went over to their little island fortress and they assumed they were safe. But what did Alexander do? Alexander built a causeway out of rocks. It took months to do it, but eventually he built a bridge and he sent his army over and he tore down the walls and he burned Tyre to the ground. Tyre will be burned to the ground. The the fortress in the sea will be on fire and burned up. Zechariah prophesied that centuries before it happened. And then you'll notice the note on Gaza in verse 5. When Alexander's armies came to Gaza, Gaza also refused to surrender. And after sieging the city for a number of months... Eventually, the Greek army overcame the city's defenses. The city was captured, and Alexander took the king, and to make an example of him, he bore holes in his feet, tied ropes through them, and drug him through the city until he was dead. It's a bit graphic, but it's a clear fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, just as a side note, because I think it's so interesting, when Alexander came to Jerusalem... According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, the high priest, knowing about the prophecies regarding Alexander the Great, prophecies that are here in Zechariah and prophecies that are in Daniel chapter 11, went out to meet Alexander and showed him Daniel 11, the prophecies about him, and Alexander seeing that, and probably accompanied by a vision, left 
Jerusalem untouched. That's cool. That's biblical prophecy, and that's amazing. Okay, well, we don't have time to dwell on that. We got to keep going. Our third in our 10 events, the return of the exiles, the rise of the Greeks. Now, thirdly, the revolt of the Maccabees, the revolt of the Maccabees. You can look there again in chapter nine, verse 13. Zechariah says this, for I will bend Judah as my bow. I will fill the bow with Ephraim. So Judah represents the Southern kingdom, Ephraim, the Northern kingdom. All Zechariah is saying is that he's going to take Israelites, both from the Southern kingdom and those who are descendants of those in the Northern kingdom. And he's going to use them to rouse them up. He says, I will rouse up your sons, O Zion, that's Jerusalem, against your sons, O Greece, and I will make you like a mighty man's sword. In other words, this verse is saying that at some point in the future, there's going to be a group from Jerusalem that rises up against the Greeks. Well, when did that happen? Well, that happened in the year 167 when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem and the Maccabees revolted and overthrew the Seleucids. The Seleucids, again, being one of those four Greek dynasties. I think that's amazing. And again, this December, I already mentioned the fact that in 164, when they rededicated the temple, that's what gives us the Feast of Hanukkah. This December, when you see lights out for Hanukkah, you can remember, oh yeah, there's a passage in Zechariah where Zechariah prophesied that that was going to happen and he prophesied that like 300 years before it happened. Actually more like 350, but you're right. Okay, our fourth in our list of 10 prophetic events, the rejection of the Messiah, the rejection of of the Messiah. Well, we've already seen, of course, chapter nine, verse nine, that the Messiah would be revealed to the people as one lowly riding on the the colt of a donkey. But if you flip over to chapter 11, we find a lot more about how the good shepherd will be rejected by the flock of Israel. In chapter 11, God asks Zechariah to actually role play the part of a shepherd. He refers to Israel as a flock and Zechariah is to role play the part of a shepherd to prefigure the good shepherd who will come. And so you can see this in chapter 11, verse seven. So I shepherded the flock doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs The one I called favor and the other I called union. So I shepherded the flock. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month for my soul was impatient with them and their soul was weary of me. So Zechariah is using the analogy of a shepherd to talk about a leader of the people. And he is taking on the role of the good shepherd representing and prefiguring the Messiah And he says there at the end of verse eight that the other shepherds, the three shepherds, the other leaders of Israel are going to be weary of and antagonistic toward the Messiah. And as a result of that, the Messiah will also 
oppose them. The way this plays itself out in the life of Christ is that you have the three shepherds. Most commentators believe that that represents the three categories of leadership in ancient Israel, prophet, priest, and king, which in the time of Christ, the prophets had been replaced by the scribes and Pharisees. The priests, the priestly line was the Sadducees, and the kings had been reduced to the elders of the people. So the Messiah was rejected by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the elders of the people. And 40 years after they rejected their Messiah, God himself rejected them. When Titus Vespasian came and Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70, all three of these offices were immediately cut off. Such that after the destruction of Jerusalem and then certainly after 135 and the dispersion of the nation, there are no Pharisees and there are no Sadducees and there are no longer any elders of the people. It's amazing that God foretold that through Zechariah more than 500 years before it happened. You can see as a result of their rejection of the good shepherd, verse nine, they will lose divine favor but skip, all, skip down to verse 12. And I said to them, this is still Zechariah talking as the good shepherd. If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver as my wages. Then Yahweh said to me, throw it to the potter, that valuable piece at which, or that valuable price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Wasn't this interesting? Here, Zechariah is prefiguring the ultimate good shepherd and he asks the people, how much is my ministry worth to you? How much am I worth to you? 30 pieces of silver. And of course, that anticipates Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16, when Judas betrays the ultimate and final good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the hands of the religious leaders? What do the religious leaders value the life of the Messiah at? 30 pieces of silver. Well, this is amazing. So we've seen the return of the exiles. We've seen the rise of the Greeks, the revolt of the Maccabees, the rejection of the Messiah. Well, there's a fifth in this sort of first cluster of prophetic glimpses And that is the ruin of the nation, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the disbursement of the people. This is in the first six verses of Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah 11 verses one to six. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may consume your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen because the mighty trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There's a sound of the shepherd's wail. Again, that's the corrupt leaders. The corrupt leaders of Israel are wailing for their might is destroyed. There's a sound of young lions roaring for the pride of the Jordan, that is the house of Judah is destroyed. Thus says Yahweh, my God, shepherd the flock doomed for slaughter. And then skip down to verse six as he continues this. For I will no longer spare the inhabitants of the land, declares Yahweh, 
But behold, I will cause the men to fall each into another's hand and into the hand of his king, and they will crush the land, and I will not deliver them from their land. Just a few comments to make about this portion of the text. Again, like in the first few verses of chapter nine, we have the description of an invading army coming from the north. But this time, unlike the Greeks, they will not spare Israel or its people. This time, the people will be decimated by this army, the flock doomed for destruction. The reference to the cypress trees and the cedar trees of Lebanon, probably a reference to the temple, which was built out of those building materials. Also a reference to the geographic direction that this army would come from. And when is this fulfilled? This is fulfilled in AD 70 with the Romans coming to destroy the temple and to destroy Jerusalem. And it's again fulfilled I suppose I could say it starts to be fulfilled in AD 70 all the way up to AD 135 when Hadrian utterly destroys the nation and disperses the people. And again, as we said earlier, after AD 135 and Hadrian's crushing of what was called the Bar Kokhba revolt, the nation of Israel ceases to exist as a geopolitical unit. Jewish people survive all over the world, but the nation of Israel is gone. Okay. I have five more promises for you from these texts. If category one were prophecies that were all fulfilled in the first 650 years after they were given, category two represents prophecies that have a more distant fulfillment. Like the close star versus the star that's far away, the first five are more close in terms of their fulfillment. The second five are more distant. But this is so cool. Number six in our list, the redemption of the Gentiles. The redemption of the Gentiles. Go back to chapter nine, verse seven. He's just talked about how the Philistines and the Philistine cities are going to be destroyed. So he's talking about the Philistines and what does he say? Verse seven, I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. It's a reference to both violence and idolatry. Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron, that's a Philistine city, will be like a Jebusite. The Jebusites were non-Jewish people that were incorporated and accepted into Israel back in Israel's history. And here, Zechariah says, there's going to be Philistines who are a remnant to the Lord. I mean, the Philistines are like the bad guys of the Bible, right? It's like Delilah and Goliath. What I think is so interesting is not only does this promise that God is going to save those from every tribe, including the Philistines, but modern DNA has demonstrated that the Philistines were not a Semitic people. They actually came in the 12th century BC to that part of Israel, the Mediterranean shore, from southern Europe. They're European. I think that's so interesting. And 
they serve here in chapter 9, verse 7, of a picture of the fact that God is going to save those beyond just the Semitic people, those beyond just Israel. He's also going to save the Gentiles. If God can save Philistines, and he says he will, he can save those from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people. And that's amazing. Well, that takes us to number seven on our list. Number seven is the regathering of the people. And I'm going to combine it with number eight on our list. And that is the repentance of Israel, the regathering of the Jewish people. And then number eight, the repentance of Israel. And this is all recorded in Zechariah chapter 10. Starting in verse six, I will make the house of Judah mighty and I will save the house of Joseph and I will cause men to return because I've had compassion on them and they will be as though I had not rejected them for I am Yahweh their God and I will answer them. All Ephraim will be like a mighty man and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see and be glad Their heart will rejoice in Yahweh. I will whistle for them to gather them together for I have redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before. And I will sow them among the peoples and they will remember me in far countries and they will, with their children, they will live and turn back. And then I will cause them to return from the land of Egypt and from the land of Assyria. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until there is no room found for them. And then verse 12, and I will make them mighty in Yahweh and in his name, they will walk, declares the Lord. So yes, in 135, the nation disbanded. But here, God promises, in addition to redeeming Gentiles, a promise that begins with the church age, God promises that he will regather his people, a promise that began to be fulfilled in 1947. From 135 to 1947, no nation of Israel. 1947, the nation of Israel is reconstituted. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, the nation has not returned in repentance and faith, That's yet to be fulfilled. But Zechariah says that's what is going to happen. And in fact, we know from other places in Scripture, like the book of Revelation, that that will indeed take place. It will take place during the Great Tribulation, starting with the 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe of Israel. Brings us to number nine on our list. And that is the reign of the Antichrist, the reign of the Antichrist. I won't read these verses just because we're short on time, but at the end of Zechariah chapter 11, verses 15 to 17, God tells Zechariah, okay, you've played the part of the good shepherd. Now I want you to take on the part of the foolish shepherd, one who was deceptive and cruel and violent and turns on the flock of Israel. And because it's contrasted with the good shepherd, commentators agree that this is a prefigurement of the Antichrist. And Zechariah will have more to say about him in chapters 12 to 14. And of course, the book of Revelation and other parts of 
the Bible tell us about the man of lawlessness who will pretend to help Israel and then turn on them and seek to annihilate them completely. So the redemption of the Gentiles, the regathering of the people, the repentance of Israel, the reign of the Antichrist, and then finally, number 10 in our list of 10, the return of the Lord. We started with the return of some exiles. We end much more climactically with the return of the Lord. Go back to Zechariah chapter nine. Look at verse 14, the return of Christ. Then Yahweh will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning and Lord Yahweh will blow the trumpet and will go in the storm winds on the south. Yahweh of hosts will defend them. Look down at verse 16. And Yahweh, their God, will save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they are as the stones of a crown sparkling in his hand. For what goodness and what beauty will be theirs. I love this. This is a promise that the Lord will return. He will return for his people. He will return to rescue his people and he will return to reign over his people in blessing. And you can read, of course, about the millennial kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ in places like Revelation chapter 20, verses one to seven. Well, up to this point, we have seen the what of Zechariah's prophecy. Five that had a relatively soon or near fulfillment and five that had a relatively distant fulfillment. In fact, those first five have all been completely fulfilled. Of the second set, the first two, the redemption of the Gentiles and the regathering of the nation, those two are in the process of being fulfilled. It is only the repentance of Israel, the reign of Antichrist and the return of the Lord Jesus that have still to be fulfilled. And yet as surely as those first seven have been or are being fulfilled, those final three prophecies will come to pass. As we bring all of this to a close, I wanna ask the question, why? We started with what, and there was a lot of what. But I wanna ask the question, why? Why does Zechariah give this prophecy to these people? What are the implications of this? I think the answer to that is actually found in the very center of this prophetic section in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah chapter 10. He's giving them all this prophecy, all of this future promise, all of this amazing evidence of God's glory in the future and of their place in it as his people. And then Zechariah says, here's what you do with it. Verse one, ask rain from Yahweh at the time of the late rain, Yahweh who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain, the plant in the field to each of them. Verse two, for the teraphim speak wickedness and the diviners behold false visions and speak worthless dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people journey like sheep. They are afflicted because there is no shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherd and I will visit punishment upon the male goats. That's the false leaders of Israel. 
For Yahweh of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his splendid house in battle. From them will come the cornerstone. That's a reference to the Messiah. From them, the tent peg. From them, the bow of battle. From them, every good taskmaster, every good leader out of them together. And verse five, they will be as a mighty man, trembling down, excuse me, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. And they will battle for Yahweh will be with them and the riders on horses will be put to shame. Really three implications here, and this will be very quick. Number one, Israel was to respond to these promises with humble dependence. In humility, they were to depend on the Lord for their protection and their provision. You see that in verse one, ask the Lord for rain. He's going to take care of you. You see that all throughout. He's going to protect you. Humility. Number two, they were to separate themselves from idolatry. You see that in verses two and three. So that's holiness. Separate yourselves from idolatry. Separate yourself unto pure worship and obedience of Yahweh. And then thirdly, verses four and five, in hope, They are to seek their deliverance from the Lord. So in humility, they depend on the Lord. In holiness, they depart from false idols. And in hope, they find their deliverance in Yahweh. Those would have been incredibly encouraging implications for these people. And it causes us to ask, why does God reveal things about the future to his people in the present? Is it so that we can create charts and go on Facebook and argue? No. It is so that in seeing his sovereign hand over the future, we can respond in humility, depending on him, in holiness, departing from false idols, false gods, false fulfillments, false satisfaction, and in hope, clinging to him both for this life and the next. The implications for ancient Israel are the same as the implications for us. And as this oracle reminds us, the reason all of this is possible is because God is sovereign over history and he has a plan for his people and that plan centers on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It centers on the king who entered Jerusalem lowly and riding a donkey, the king who was rejected as the good shepherd, the king who is the cornerstone prophesied here in chapter 10 verse 4. And yet the king who will return, he will return to regather his people and to lead them to saving faith and to rescue them from their enemies and to establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. You say, okay, well, that was great for a group of remnant Israelites in 500 BC, but how does that relate to me? And the answer comes back to the sixth prophecy on our list. 
the fact that we as Gentiles can be included in all of this through the redemption that the Messiah provides. And if God can save Philistines, he can save any Gentile and he offers that to all who place their faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that if you are in Christ this evening, your future is to have your savior return and to have him establish his kingdom and for you to reign with him and for you to experience the blessing that's described in this, in this text. Not because you are Israel, you're the church, but because you are in Christ and in him, he has brought near those who are far off. If you knew that Jesus Christ was coming back this year, how would your life change? The 10 prophecies that we surveyed tonight, five of them have already been fulfilled. Two of them are in process. Three will be fulfilled as surely as the first seven. If you knew Jesus Christ was coming back this year, how would it affect your humble dependence, your holiness and obedience, and your hope in the midst of trial? That's why Zechariah's message is compelling. And as those who are Christians, we should live every day expecting our Savior to return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. How amazing it is to see these prophetic fulfillments. They are all evidence of the fact that you are sovereign over history. The God who is the God of the heavens is also the God of history and he puts his glory on display in the stars and in fulfilled prophecy. And all of it points to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd who was rejected, sold for 30 pieces of silver. And yet because of his work of redemption and atonement, his sacrifice on the cross, all those who put their faith in him will be saved. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. And therefore the hope of this passage can be the hope for anyone who is in Christ. We look forward to the day when the Lord Jesus comes back. We look forward to the establishment of his millennial reign. For then, it truly will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.